Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Casting live from the BNY Mellon Pershing Insight 2019 conference. Our focus is on the U.S. largely, but China has taken front and center here, uh, particularly with the protests that have been ongoing in Hong Kong. There's been a bit of a reprieve with uh, some of the, uh, the calm being sort of inserted over some of the protests. But yesterday, uh, the chief executive of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, was speaking about this issue. Listen to what she said about the controversial law that spurred all of the protests. Take a listen. I will not shy away from my responsibility in introducing a piece of legislation, though we are very convinced of the justifications that causing this public outcry and all these uh, divisiveness in society. But sometimes, as a political leader, you cannot shy away from difficult decisions. Not backing down from this extradition law that is what is causing the unrest. Joining us now, Anne Stevenson, Anne Stevenson Yang, co-founder and research director at J Capital Research, also a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. Uh, Anne, thank you so much for being with us. First of all, I just want to get your take on sort of uh, Hong Kong's chief executive's uh, reluctance to back away from this controversial legislation. Hi. So thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I think that I think that we've known for 30 years now that the chief executive of Hong Kong is essentially, uh, I, I hate to say it so bluntly, but a Chinese puppet. But the but the the real shocker here is that the Hong Kong Legco and police have been so uh, turned uh, by the by the Chinese interests. What do you mean by that? Well, that the, the Hong Kong police react, have reacted with a level of violence that they never had used before. Um, rubber you bullets, mean the tear gas? Tear gas. Yeah, and, um, uh, and, and, you know, spraying pepper spray directly into people's faces. I think all of these things really surprised Hong Kong people and dismayed them because, you know, this was a peaceful protest. Um, and it was surprising to see from Hong Kong police. As for the LegCo, you know, to push through this incredibly unpopular law, now they're de- now they're delaying the, uh, the the debate on it, but probably will bring it up at you know midnight when there are no protesters around. Okay, well, so you started by saying that Hong Kong's chief executive has always been, in your words, a, a puppet of, of Beijing. If that's the case. Then why is Xi Jinping pushing this law now, given what it's what he's dealing with with respect to tariffs from the U.S.? Um, you know, I, I don't think he's the most deft politician. I think it's an awkward time to be uh, to, to be seeing such huge protests in Hong Kong, particularly with the Taiwanese primary and elections coming up, and with the June Fourth anniversary and with the trade talks. You know, it wasn't a good time. I'm sure they didn't anticipate it. Okay, so uh, you think it was just a, a mistake, a sort of political miscalculation, perhaps, given the fact that uh, it's probably going to be yet another complication he's going to have to deal with? Probably, yeah. Okay. Um, well, I guess that then I'm wondering what your perspective is when it comes to the investment aspect of this, because we already saw one property developer uh, delay or, or withdraw from plans in Hong Kong due to the increasing control of Beijing over the territory. Are you hearing about other 
investment firms that say are, are pulling back or uh, being a little more hesitant in their expansion plans in the territory as a result of this idea that it wouldn't necessarily be treated special from the mainland? I, not really. Um, you know, people are, are talking about it, but that's very different from making plans, uh, corporate plans. I do think that it adds to the general sense of uh, of instability and volatility and unpredictability with both mainland and Hong Kong operations. And so you will see a lot of companies that are able to decamp to Singapore to do that instead. Okay, so I guess that one question that I have is, how special is Hong Kong at this point from Beijing, given the fact that uh, Xi Jinping of China has made a concerted effort to open up markets uh, to more international firms in, in the mainland? I, I would disagree with that point. I think that actually things have gone quite in the other direction um, since 2012 when Xi Jinping took over. Um, but as for as for Hong Kong's independence, you know, there's a there's a very clear trend line, and Hong Kong is destined to become just another mainland city. The question is, you know, the future of the party, the future of the Chinese economy, all those normal uh, considerations. But if, uh, if 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 the Chinese mainland, if nothing else changes then Hong Kong will be sort of Shenzhen in, in another you know, few years. I'm surprised to hear that you say things have moved in the opposite direction because so many big, for example, banks, uh, international banks, have been expanding their arms in China. And we've seen a, a number of distressed debt investors, for example, uh, including uh, Howard Marks uh, and his firm, going into China to invest more because they have more confidence uh, that they'll be able to be supported by the laws, et cetera, there. Doesn't that well, seem like I, it's I, would, I mean, first of all, I would point out that distressed debt is about distress. It's not, it's not necessarily about the laws. Um, you know, ask particularly why they go in, and I think it's, it's much more about distress than about su- being supported by the laws. But otherwise, let's just look at the macro numbers. There's been an increase in public ownership or state own- ownership of, of, asset, of key assets in all sorts of industries. Private ownership has declined. Uh, FDI numbers are, are very small uh, compared to what they used to be. Um, uh, on the portfolio front, there are still, you know, portfolio investment, there's still uh, increase in, uh, in money raised through IPOs, but overall investment flows are starting to move the other direction. This is really interesting to me. It's also interesting that you say that Hong Kong is destined to become uh, another just uh, outpost of the mainland. And I'm wondering uh, how far along in that evolution you think it already is. Um, I would say that, um, you know, things were fair, were, were quite stable um, while the Chinese economy was still sort of sailing along and then began to get rocky and, and getting rocky uh, you know, because because Hu Jintao in, engaged in such a massive stimulus, the getting rocky part really began with Xi Jinping. So, uh, who also has the most authoritarian and I would say politically clumsy instincts of any of the leaders of the past two decades. So it, it's I think it's coeval with with Xi Jinping's ascension. I don't think it's necessarily his fault, although I, I do think he has a tenure for politics. 
and Stevenson Yang, thank you so much for, for your comments. It's really uh, jarring to see these images of what I've heard is hundreds of thousands of protesters in Hong Kong. Uh, certainly yesterday we saw those coming out protesting this, uh, this extradition law uh, that Hong Kong's chief executive is still doubling down on uh, and saying she will not shy away from controversial legislation. And Stevenson Yang is co-founder and research director at J Capital Research. She is also a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. in lovely Phoenix at the Convention Center, and I am here because I'm attending the BNY Mellon Pershing Insight 2019 conference, which is focused on reimagining business, in particular uh, for registered advisors uh, and brokers as it cater to individuals trying to figure out the landscape here uh, at a time of incredible uncertainty. I'm very lucky to have Jim Crowley with me, who will become the chief executive officer of Pershing, which is a BNY Mellon company. Uh, come July 1st, uh, Jim, first of all, congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, I wanted to start with uh, your clients. There are more than 2,000 people here, and I'm trying to figure out as they try to reimagine themselves in yeah. a world with new technologies and a great deal of uncertainty on the policy front. What's their biggest concern? Well, there are several. You mentioned technology. That's one. So the complexity of the technology environment and the new technology that's coming to the financial services industry is very disruptive. The regulatory change that's happening across the industry, both in the advisory marketplace as well as the broker-dealer marketplace. And then the third thing is reimagining what that client experience can be in the future because consumers have become so accustomed to a different kind of behavior, a different kind of experience working with the fintech community. So what does an experience today look like or, or, or perhaps tomorrow yeah. <laughs> look like uh, from your point of view? So experience for us means how well we get the work done, how quickly we get it done. Uh, was the experience good? Did people leave uh, the process feeling good about what just happened? Was it easy to complete? The financial services industry has long been an industry with very complex regulations around it, many requirements around it in terms of data gathering and information about investors, and it is a complex process. And so how can we simplify that all? That's what we're really focused on. But is that different than it's always been? No, it's not different than it's always been, but the investors experience with other fintech providers or other consumer businesses has changed what their expectation is. So how can we make it easier to um, move money around? How simple it is to make a purchase on uh, Amazon or on eBay. Can we move money as quickly and as easily from a bank account to an investment account? Those are the things that they expect us to do. One thing that I'm wondering is if you could put, put some of the changes that the industry is facing into perspective. Because I know you've been, you've been doing this for a while. Yes. Um, and I think that there have always been sort of sea changes over time yes. uh, in the financial industry. And a lot of people are talking now about the sort of movement online and the movement to people who are more accustomed to uh, interface with, with the web. How different is it? I mean, is this, is this a yeah. radical shift or is this sort of in line with the evolutions that you've seen over years? Well, what has happened uh, over the time and what has come with the whole online experience is what I would describe as the digitization of the business. And so 
a business that has long been driven by paper and wet signatures, now people expect to do it on their iPhone. Uh, they don't expect to have to receive a piece of paper in the mail and sign it and return it and have it take a matter of days. That They want things done in a matter of minutes. Okay, and that, so that, that changes it. But what about from an actual investment standpoint? Because a lot of people talk about millennials to the point yeah. where, you know, people roll their eyes at a certain point on all sides because you can't talk to a group of people within a broad range of ages as a monolith. But are there trends in the way that they invest money that your clients are increasingly dealing with and trying to address? Well, I think that there definitely is. People are very focused on the cost of investing now. They're very focused on social responsibility and, and uh, having a real community around what they're trying to do and how they're trying to invest. So there are nuances to what people are doing, and it is impacting how assets are flowing through the different product platforms that are out there today. And uh, it's something that, you know, we don't have a direct at Pershing. We don't have a direct... Uh, access to the market. Our job is to help our clients, these advisory firms and, and businesses, to run their businesses more efficiently so they can serve their advisors more effectively. And so we have to have a platform that allows for the different types of product choices that these investors and advisors want in this new world. When you talk about social responsibility, uh, people talk about you know a variety of ESG funds. How are you seeing this manifested? Because a lot of ESG funds haven't necessarily seen the degree of money to come in that sort of is commensurate with the amount that it's talked about. Yeah. Well, I think um, you know a lot of these things take uh, longer to develop than you would necessarily think. Uh, I think the, the marketing is perhaps sometimes ahead of the actual uh, results. Uh, but over What do you mean by that? Well, I think that, um, you know, whether, it's, whether you're an asset manager or whether you're any one of the 140 business providers that are here, I think many times it takes longer to sort of realize what you're trying to achieve. We had Alan Mulally here yesterday from Ford. He made a great comment about profitable, gro profitable growth for all. I thought it was a great comment because... It really does get everyone aligned in what we're trying to do and uh, make certain that everyone is a participant in the process. And I just thought it was a wonderful comment, and it really sort of resonates with what the spirit is of this event to bring all these business partners together, all the different clients together, to talk about reimagining the future. Thank you so much for, for hosting us and for, oh, thank uh, you for speaking being with here. me. Uh, and, uh, wish you the best of luck surviving. I think it's going to be 110 today. It was 118 at one point yesterday. Yes, well, let's stay inside and stay cool. Yeah, it's definitely uh, nice and cool and a lot of really uh, important and interesting conversations taking place here uh, in the Phoenix Convention Center. Jim Crowley, Chief Executive Officer, come July 1st of Pershing, which is a BNY Mellon company, uh, joining us here in Phoenix, hosting uh, the BNY Mellon Pershing Insight Conference of 2019.
We are broadcasting from the BNY Mellon Pershing Insight Conference. Uh, One question people have is about President Trump and uh, heading into the 2020 elections, the Democratic candidates. President Trump sat down with ABC News chief anchor George Stephanopoulos yesterday. Uh, He said that he would take foreign information on 2020 opponents, saying it's not an interference if they have information. I think I'd take it if I thought there was something wrong. I'd maybe go to the FBI if I thought there was something wrong. Joining me now is Clint Watts, Distinguished Research Fellow uh, for the Foreign Policy Research Institute, also Senior Fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at the George Washington University. He is outside the Capitol in Washington, D.C. currently. Clint, what did you make of those comments that President Trump made yesterday on ABC News? Uh, It seems to affirm what we've always suspected is that the president isn't worried about foreign interference in our elections. Uh, He might even welcome uh, opposition research, as he calls it, or what we would call data dumps, uh, hack and release. And so when we look at 2020, it looks like we might look to a replay of 2016. It, It sends a signal to adversaries that they can pretty much maneuver in the way that Russia did in 2016. I think for allies now, they have to question, should they start backing candidates uh, that they prefer in an election? Would they want to provide opposition research? It's also uh, dangerous because the president hasn't entirely divested from his businesses. And so if you're a foreign adversary or an ally or just want to influence the election, uh, if you know information about the president's businesses, uh, what his relationships are overseas with other uh, entities, why not dump that out of the open or try and influence the election towards whichever candidate you want. And I think the final big thing is the FBI has gone to great measures with the Foreign Influence Task Force to try and go out to Democratic campaigns and and brief them, give them a counterintelligence brief and tell them what the rules of the road are uh, heading into 2020. And the president basically said that uh, the FBI director was wrong and that uh, he didn't necessarily think he needed to do that. So it it puts our entire election in a weird context where it seems that everything's out the window, uh, anything could go, and our institutions are really incapable of protecting us because even at the leadership level, uh, they're getting mixed messages. Was was President Trump saying this in that format somehow a signal or, or recognition that there is uh, a foreign entity or, or more than one that is looking to uh, have one of these data dumps and have perhaps him on the receiving end? I don't think it was a clear invite. I mean, my contacts for why it came up yesterday was because his son was at the Senate committee, you know, behind closed doors talking about uh, what was his contacts, uh, what was his relationship, what was the information he relayed uh, based on that Trump Tower meeting. And so I think he was trying to rationalize what his son did, what he might do uh, to try and essentially exonerate themselves uh, from any scrutiny. But at the same time, it does beg the question, is the president opening up to anyone out there that might want to help him? Hey, I'm open for business. Uh, I would love any research on my uh, my opponents. And, and it really just puts America in a position of weak, weakness to any authoritarian adversary that wants to hack a candidate or hack an institution, maybe even uh, hack one of our, our, our intel agencies and try and drive a narrative uh, that undermines the greater good of, of the country.
So, uh, Clint, uh, you're a former FBI special agent. You've worked in the U.S. Army. Uh, you've been, uh, when you were in the FBI, uh, you were part of the Joint Terrorism Task Force. You've written this book, Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News. And I'm wondering uh, whether there's any precedent for a president of the United States to accept f information on perhaps an opponent, a political opponent, from foreign governments? Is there a precedent in history? Not that I'm aware of, and it, it is violating the law. It, it was something that came up in the Mueller report. It specifically said that uh, the only reason that they did not pursue charges against some of the Trump campaign members was because they were unaware, basically, of what the stipulation is, that you can't take foreign help or foreign contributions uh, in order to win the election. This clearly seems to suggest that the president does know this, uh, but doesn't care, you know, and is willing to violate that. And it's, it is without precedent. And I also think it speaks to the degradation of norms, where if you remember back, Al Gore received a, a briefing book, uh, which George Stephanopoulos actually brings up in that discussion with the president. Uh, Al Gore's campaign called the FBI because they knew it was either stolen or pilfered materials. And that was kind of the rules of the road that everyone accepted and it just shows how far we've changed in terms of our country about what we see as acceptable in order to win an election. And by winning, what are we really saying about our country as a whole? So, Clint, just to just to sort of push back here, what would you say to someone who said, well, why does it matter, right? I mean, more information is better. And, you know, why should we self-censor regardless of what the source is of the information? If it's accurate, why shouldn't it be a go? Because in the case of foreign adversaries, they are trying to pursue something inside the United States. So let's look back to 2016. They gave us information about one candidate to distract from one candidate. We don't really know the full spectrum of it. And the goal was essentially to advance Russian interests inside the United States and abroad, and they were successful in that. They've been quite successful. Barring sanctions relief, uh, Russia's gotten most of the, what they've wanted internationally. So this incentivizes every country around the world to do criminal activity against the United States in the, in the form of hacking, to go at uh, political candidates, and to even link up to political candidates and possibly give them false information to create chaos inside of our country, which suits their need. Really sets us up in a position of weakness rather than a position of strength vis-a-vis -vis our adversaries. So, Clint, just real quick here, since you do specialize in uh, hackers and terrorists and, and, and fake news, what are you expecting heading into the 2020 elections? I mean, are we getting any indications of just how uh, rampant fake news and some of the uh, foreign interference might be? The big change is really that most of the inauthentic accounts and information I'm seeing pop up right now are, I think, domestic in origin more than foreign. And what, what you're really going to see, I think, from Russia and others is a cost-benefit calculation. They will try and edge forward and push forward the candidates that they prefer, which are largely populist candidates, uh, whether you're on others, either side of the political aisle. And they're probably waiting to see how aggressive to be because they also don't want to provoke a negative reaction from afar. So if you're China, uh, Iran, or Russia, which are the big ones we always talk about, but even other countries like Saudi and Israel that want to influence uh, U.S. politics, they're making calculations right now. Going and doing offensive hacking the way the Russian GRU did in 2016 could provoke or even force like a President Trump to take a retaliatory action, to have to mobilize and do something. Yeah. And they may not see the need to go that far this time if they think they're yeah. getting the outcome they want. They're pretty happy right now about us fighting each other. 
Clint Watts, thank you so much for being with us. Clint Watts is Distinguished Research Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He's also a Senior Fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at the George Washington University. From Phoenix, Arizona, this is Bloomberg. Thank you so much, Greg Jarrett. Well, yesterday on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, Paul Tudor Jones, uh, the co-chair and chief investment officer and, of course, founder of Tudor Investment Corp., was speaking on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television, uh, advising people that they should pull out their playbook for when the Fed cuts rates. So there is no playbook for this. Uh, the only thing is, is that because the Federal Reserve is going to cut rates, he advises people go into stocks, go into go long rates, go short the dollar, but go long gold. Joining me now, Matt Forrester, Chief Investment Officer at BNY Mellon's Lockwood Advisors here at the BNY Mellon Pershing Insight Conference of 2019. Do you think that that's the way to go? Go long stocks because the Fed's going to cut rates? Um, I think uh, it's going to depend on why the Fed ends up communicating why they're cutting rates. I think that's going to be a big part of how markets react to this. I think it's an argument that uh, you might want to sell the first rate cut in terms of equities. The other pieces of this, I think, are you know fully intact. And we've seen a pretty strong gold market. Um, I think the bond trade is really interesting here. And um, that's the pieces that I think are going to be... We've had such a big decline in interest rates. So I think I would want to make sure that the fixed income portion of your portfolio is set up properly in case the recessionary uh, kind of forces continue to build. I mean, we've seen so many different models, quant models, whether it's based on the yield curve or other measures, that are really warning that the probability of recession, sometimes in the, in the market's time frame, 12 to 18 months, is really rising. So, you know, in that environment, I think it might be harder for stocks, and they might react well to an initial rate cut, um, you know, or the prospect of some rate cuts. The question is how they would react, you know, soon after that if it looked like some of the recessionary forces were starting to build. One thing that we neglect to talk about enough when we talk about the Fed cutting rates is the consequence of a really long period of near zero rates. I mean, we used to talk about this, but uh, with retirees, for example, and I'm just wondering if you could give us a sense of the scope of that problem. Uh, I don't want to say problem, but yeah, problem, because there are all these people who are preparing to retire and they're struggling to find a place to get income. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is a really interesting, uh, you know, part of the market is just uh, retirees that are struggling with this annuitization of all the funds that they have uh, accumulated over their lifetime. And so one of the stats that isn't quite uh, as well known, you hear a lot people saying that, oh, well, there's 10,000 retirees per day, you know, turning people turning 65 in the United States. Not all those people are retiring. But the interesting thing about that, there's a researcher, the St. Louis Fed, who has who has calculated that that actual number is going to rise between here and 2023 or 2024, and it's going to get close to 12,000 a day. So this is a really monumental kind of demographic sea change. Um, you know, on top of fascinating statistics like we have the lowest birth rate in 32 years in the United States. So you know, the the question is, what is the seed corn for future growth growth going to be? You know, and is the Fed going to be going to get out of this uh, operating monetary policy?
policy at a zero bound on um, you know inflation and interest rates. I think these are really important questions. Does it mean that 65 really isn't the time for people to retire? It's more like 83? Well, that's certainly what we've seen. Right? If you look at the labor market, the labor participation rate amongst older workers over 55 is one of the fastest growing parts of uh, labor participation, whereas the rest of the labor pool you know, continues to shrink in terms of labor participation. Um, so clearly there is some pressure on older workers to continue to stay in the workforce in order to continue to build that retirement nest egg. So as people get older, one question I have is, what do they do in this environment, given a time of great uncertainty on a policy front where you have tariffs that, you know, as Paul Tudor Jones was saying, could tip uh, the United States into recession in his view. You've got a Fed that is poised to cut rates, at least uh, based on market expectations. With someone with only 10 years left, say, before they're supposed to retire, what are they supposed to do with their allocations? Yeah, I think right now, at this point in the cycle, uh, one of the things that we see a lot at Lockwood is uh, advisors may be reaching for a little bit of yield. And I think that might be a more dangerous trade. Again, if we start seeing you know, recessionary pressures build, and hopefully we're wrong, hopefully we have more time to make these kind of adjustments. But you know, if the recessionary forces come faster than what markets expect, you know, some of these credit portions of their portfolio, places where people have reached to get that extra yield, you know, could could be could be really challenging. The other thing I need to think about it in terms of in terms of a global context. You know, we have uh, you know a nearly 11 trillion dollars globally in negative yielding debt, and that's astonishing. I mean, we've heard here uh, Jim Crowley, you know, our CEO, CEO talk about uh, there's only seven trillion dollars in the wealth management industry here in the United States. There's almost 11 trillion dollars in uh, negative yielding debt. You know, U.S. rates don't look so bad, <laughs> you know, when you compare it in this uh, kind of global context. Matt Forrester, thank you so much as always for being with us, Matt. Forrester. Chief Investment Officer at BNY Mellon's Lockwood Advisors with a stunning statistic uh, that it's going to be potentially in the near future 12,000 people every day in the United States turning 65 and entering that retirement age. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.